Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, um, and welcome to this inaugural lecture by Paul Dolan. And I shall say a little bit more about him and this lecture in a second. But before I do, some of you, although perhaps not all of you, since I think we may have slightly underestimated the numbers, have got a little questionnaire which should not be very, very difficult to answer. Um, and what we'd like you to do is to do it now and then pass them to the end of the row uh, and they'll be picked up by the stewards and then, in fact, uh, unusually, Paul can use this as a bit of uh, audience participation uh, later on. So if you could do that, those of you who've got questions, that would be terrific. We have a rather loose uh, tradition at the LSE of uh, inaugural lectures, um, but I've been trying to uh, revive it somewhat since it had fallen into um, abeyance in my uh, early years here. Uh, and I think it is a very good practice that <coughs> professors, particularly professors who are new to the school, as Paul is, uh, should have an opportunity to explain to the school community and to others who care to come uh, the type of work they're interested in, the direction of their research, and to do so, we hope, in a way that interests a non-specialist audience. So I'm sure that there are quite a lot of people here from uh, social policy, but I'm sure there are plenty of people from other parts of the school uh, as well. And it seems to me to be rather important that the whole school community has an idea of what people are working <coughs> on. And Paul joined us last year, um, immediately before he came here. He was at uh, Imperial, but has been at other places, at York and elsewhere. Um, he uh, is also uh, doing some work with the government who are now interested in well-being uh, studies. Uh, and so he's going to talk to us uh, today uh, about absolute beginners, behavioural economics and human happiness, uh, which is an area of work which has been growing in importance at the school, in different parts of the school, in social policy um, and also, of course, in economics. Richard Layard. Uh, wrote an important book about uh, happiness a few years ago called Happiness Notes from a New Science. As I looked at um, Paul's own description, which I'm not going to read out because I'm sure he's going to explain what he wants to talk about, however, he made me uh, feel old, uh, something which I don't especially appreciate, because um, his quote, uh, Absolute Beginners, um, he refers to a song um, by The Jam, uh, written by Paul Weller, um, in which the phrase uh, occurs. Uh, whereas, actually, uh, any educated person knows um, that Absolute Beginners is the title of Volume 2 of a notable trilogy by Colin McInnes of novels published uh, in 58, 59, and 60, something which uh, I read, not precisely at the time, but I certainly read uh, while a schoolboy and rather influential uh, on uh, me. Uh, Absolute Beginners is about a uh, photographer in the East End um, who has a girlfriend uh, who rejoices in the name of Crepe Suzette, um, which it's a great book, uh, and no doubt uh, Paul has read it, and I'll ask you some questions about it um, <laughs> later. Uh, but uh, as a sort of indication of the cultural divide between us, um, my references uh, are to a seminal novel in the 1950s, and his are to a second or possibly third-rate band. Um, <laughs> uh, 
somewhat uh, somewhat later. Um, outrageous. But um, also, of course, uh, I'm a Manchester City fan, currently riding high, uh, and he is uh, from West Ham looking at his gazetteer for the addresses of championship grounds um, around the country, which he will need next year. But uh, with that you, uh, slightly leave? provocative introduction, Paul, delighted to Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to say thank you for that introduction. Uh, I'd like to, but I can't. Um, thank you, Howard. So, one of the things I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes talking about is how people miss forecast happiness. Um, boy, am I living proof of that. Uh, when Howard asked me to do this, I said yes. Like, that was a really sensible thing to do, looking at all the faces in the room. Thank you very much for coming, though, seriously. Um, this is a great honour. Um, and uh, it is so nice to see so many of you here. Um, I'm celebrating my 20th year as an academic, 10th uh, as a prof, and this is my third inaugural lecture, but um, this really does, and I, and, I, and I actually say this from the heart, feel like home, um, and, and I'm certainly not doing any more. Um, so uh, I'm going to try and do... Um, well, what am I going to try and do? I'm going to try and relate uh, two major areas of interest. Um, in fact, what I've spent all, almost all of my work time, anyway, at least, doing for the last three years since I did my inaugural work at Imperial, uh, working on. Um, and that is trying to understand individual behaviour and measure human happiness. And I'm going to try in this talk. This talk was a motivation to try and join those two areas of interest up in some meaningful um, way. And in so doing, um, I've gone for lots of depth and no breadth, uh, lots of breadth and no depth, other way around, Andrew. Um, so I'm not going to go into anything in any detail, I'm just going to try and give you a whistle-stop tour for everything, because I had a, a sense of the audience that I might get, and it's quite a wide-ranging audience, so I'm going to try and say something that might interest everybody uh, without going into any detail on um, any of it. <clears throat> Indeed, the theme of my inaugurals has been songs by the jam, who um, I encourage everyone to listen to. Not to be confused with Paul Weller, the solo artist, who's hopeless. Um, <laughs> now, it was a hit for the jam, and um, I'm going to say that we're not absolute beginners, um, but we are prone to making mistakes. Um, and we're prone to making mistakes about our happiness and about our well-being, both as individuals and as policymakers. And here's my conclusion. In fact, I could probably just finish now. Uh, it's all about attention. Um, everything that I'm going to say is about the allocation of the scarce resource of attention and how we don't always allocate it appropriately. And actually how sometimes we don't even know where we're allocating it. So I'm going to talk about what I'm going to term voluntary attention and involuntary attention, the things we attend to that we're not consciously aware of attending to. <clears throat> now, um, you're always on dangerous ground when you do surveys at the start of classes or sessions uh, that, it, that it ends up going wrong. Um, but here's to give you the result of what has happened when that's been done before that you've just been asked. Now, and this is to frame the allocation of attention issue. Imagine, <clears throat> as some of you have been asked, 
How much pleasure do you get from driving your car? On a scale of one to 10 or zero to 10, say. And you answer that question. And then we find out what car you drive, its make, its model, its age, and we estimate its current value. And we correlate those two numbers, the value of the car and the pleasure you get from driving it, they correlate about 0.4. So people who have more expensive cars get more pleasure from driving their car. It's pretty good, right? If you ask the question, how much pleasure did you get the last time you drove your car? And correlate that with how much the car is worth. The correlation is zero. Diddly squat, nothing. There is no correlation between the pleasure you got the last time you drove your car and the value of your car. Why? Because of attention. When you are asked the question, how much pleasure do you get from driving your car, you are answering the question of how much pleasure you get from driving your car whilst you are thinking about the pleasure you get from driving your car. And if you were thinking about your car whilst you were driving it, having a more expensive car would probably give you more pleasure. The fact is, the experience of your drive is most often not attending to the car that you're driving. It's attending to the idiot in front of you, it's arguing with your kids or husband or wife, it's late for meetings, thinking about all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with the car that you drive. Most of our questions that we ask for policy purposes are of the how much pleasure do you get from your car kind. How much, how much does something matter to you when you think about how much it matters? If you think of the way that we do economic appraisal for the Treasury Green Book or for trying to value health states, which is an uh, area of long-standing interest of mine, uh, not just three years, 20 years, we ask people, imagine you've got some problems walking about. Tell me how many years of life you would be willing to trade off not to have those problems. And people will say, on average, about 15% of their life expectancy. And these numbers will be used by the National, Health, National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence to inform allocation decisions. And I'm going to argue that that's just plain wrong. Well, it's kind of plain wrong. It's, it's not wrong in the sense that some problems walking about would be a big problem if you spent all of your time thinking about some problems walking about. But actually, some problems walking about aren't a problem most of the time because your attention, just like with a car example, is not constantly drawn to the fact that you have some problems walking about. If it was, it would be bad. But it isn't. The experience of your life is drawn to X factor. It doesn't really matter whether you've got problems walking about or not when you're watching X factor. Well, it might if you want to get up and hit the screen or something, I suppose. That's a different question. Um, the issue is that the things that we attend to in our forecasts of our happiness, our well-being, are not the things that we attend to in the experience of our lives. And that can lead us to systematically misrepresent the impact of different conditions, of different health states, of different events on our well-being. It can lead us to misallocate scarce health care resources in the case of some problems walking about. Because when you ask people, how many years of life would you be willing to trade off to reduce having anxiety and depression, you get about the same 15% trade-off. As if the experience of these two states is equally bad. It ain't. The experience of anxiety depression is worse because it's a constant attention-seeking condition 
in the way that some problems walking about is not. And that's a problem. <coughs> so, back to the beginning. That's my conclusion. Let's start again. Mr. Spock. Standard economic theory would have us believe that we weigh up the costs and benefits of our actions, which is including to whether to weigh up the costs and benefits of our actions. We respond to incentives and we respond to information. When we change energy suppliers, just to give an example, we change, ener we, we change energy supplier in ways that will reduce our energy bills insofar as that's what we care about. And the assumption of economics, this is really important, is that the things that we want most are the things that we will enjoy best. That's an assumption that our imaginations are good forecasts of the impact of future events. So that we can ask people when we're doing economic appraisal, as per the Treasury Green Book, how much would you be willing to pay to avoid this health state or have this clean air or have this park? or to reduce crime. And those numbers, the answers that people give to those questions are meaningful representations of the expected impact of those events. Now behavioural economics, which is the sort of slide on the right there with the whirring bit of the cognition, incorporates the lessons of psychology into the laws of economics, as most um, famously represented, I think, by the Nobel Prize that Danny Kahneman won in 2002 for exactly that. <clears throat> can explain why our energy choices, in that example, I obviously didn't just choose that randomly, if you look at the decisions of people with, when they change energy supplier, in a recent study we were, we were just um, talking about recently, um, you could have actually made a better choice by choosing randomly. Um, the choice of supplier in a third of the cases made people better off, in a third of the cases made people worse off, and in about another third of the cases didn't have any effect at all. Now that's in a relative simple decision where people are thinking mostly about how much their energy bills are going to be. They're not actually weighing up a whole range of attributes in order to make that decision. Um, <clears throat> now the lessons from the incorporation of the psychological insights into economics are feeding into policy, they're feeding into our own um, academic research. Um, we're doing studies, for example, which are incentivising people to behave in certain ways in health that incorporate some of these psychological insights. For example, again, loss aversion. We know that um, if you lost £10, that would feel quite painful. And if you found £10, that would feel quite pleasurable. But the pain of losing £10 would loom about twice as large as the pleasure of gaining £10 would. Such that actually, if you lost £10 and then found it again, you might be worse off. Or if you found £10 and then lost it again, you might be worse off. Psychologically, if not economically. Um, it has influenced the way in which we think about valuing non-market goods, for example, for informing policy decisions. So we would ask people a willingness to pay question rather than a willingness to accept compensation for not having the good because people are loss averse. Um, but we can't get rid of the focusing effect. We can't get rid of this attentional phenomenon. This is, this is a slide that until very recently made me very, very happy uh, as Howard 
alluded to, I'm a not-so-happy hammer, and seeing an ex-hammer, Frank Lampard, in misery after Chelsea had lost the Champions League final to Man United was a great joy to me. But the guy with his back to us is Avran Grant, uh, who's now West Ham manager, and so he's inflicting misery on uh, West Ham, um, which, uh, of course, is not um, that good. But the um, point of those two slides is to, which I will elucidate in a minute, of course, is to, is to just represent a fortune cookie maxim that I've alluded to on a number of occasions thus far. Nothing in life is as important as you think it is whilst you're thinking about it. Nothing in life is as important as you think it is whilst you're thinking about it. When you are forecasting how you're going to feel when your team loses the Champions League final, you are imagining attending to that loss all of the time and therefore it looms large and therefore you think you're going to be miserable. Unfortunately, and this is a shame as a West Ham fan, Chelsea fans actually weren't that miserable much after their team lost the Champions League final. Um, perhaps a more policy relevant example. If you ask people their preferences, as per the Green Book might um, say we should do this, what would you be willing to pay to avoid wind farms being built in your backyard? We know that people favour wind energy, but we also know that they don't want them built in their backyard. They imagine the noise of the wind farms and the aesthetic disbeauty of them being attention-seeking phenomena. And therefore they are willing to pay to avoid having a wind farm built in their backyard. But what if we actually go and ask them about happiness before and after the wind farm? Well, we show there ain't any effect. And in fact, if anything, there's an increase in social cohesion. When we ask people about attributes about their local area, satisfaction with their local area, the sense of community. This is interesting because their forecast wouldn't imagine that. Because of loss aversion, our forecasts imagine all of the bad things that would come as a result of some policy change or some change in the state of the world. We don't, we're not very good at imagining the benefits that might come from that. So actually, in the experience, wind farms may be good for us, but in the imagination, they're bad. Now, Adam Smith, uh, some of you would have heard of, um, wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments before he wrote The Wealth of Nations, and he understood this. The great source of misery of human life seems to arise from overrating the difference between one permanent situation and another. And that's what our imaginations do. Fortunately, we can directly measure experience. We can look at people's well-being. We can measure well-being, happiness, in a number of different ways. And I want to... Um, emphasize the richness of the notion of happiness. I'd like to reclaim that language, not just about a happy, smiley face, but also about an evaluation that life is going well, and a sense of meaning and purpose. Um, I like the 42 there, of course, because many of you will know that comes from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's also my age. And it's also about the time, isn't it, Andrew, I think, where my well-being over the life course is getting probably about as low as it's ever going to get, right? I'm probably the, the right sex and the right age for being miserable. Um, 
And at least I can look forward insofar as I will live to 70 to things um, you know, uh, on the increase over time. Um, but, and the important thing about these data is that they allow us to say what is important in people's lives when they're not thinking about how important they are. And I can't, overestimate, I can't overstate how important that is. If we do regression analysis, and I apologise if I um, uh, start using language that may not be uh, used by everybody, but if you imagine trying to explain something as we would call left-hand side variable, happiness, by a whole range of right-hand side variables, the things that cause happiness, we can look at the effects of a range of causes on the final consequence without asking people to do it for us. The key findings from some of these happiness data are that you're happier if you're young and old, or old, not young and old, that's very hard to be, I guess, simultaneously. Um, if you're healthy, wealthy, especially compared to other people, and a little bit wise, um, you might not want to do a PhD to happiness maximise. Um, uh, if you're in work, any period of unemployment is bad. That's interesting because the insecurity of having previously lost your job is an attention seeker when there's a prospect that you might lose your job in the future, even if you don't actually lose it. Um, <clears throat> the main message, though, from, from this work is that there's lots of adaptation. And when I say adaptation, I mean the withdrawal of attention. That's what I mean in the language of my first slide. The attention that is drawn to something when it's novel and new ceases to be drawn to it when it's old and established. So, for example, if you look at the effects of September 11 on mental well-being in the UK, there's a significant effect in 2001 in, on September the 12th, on the 13th, on the 14th, on the 15th, on the 16th, through September, a little bit into October, by November and December it's disappeared. <coughs> Something that is an attention-seeking phenomenon initially, because it's novel and new, ceases to be so over time. And in that case, relatively quickly, we get used to it in our mental well-being. But we haven't asked people, how much does 9-11 affect your mental well-being when you're thinking about how much it affects your mental well-being? We're asking them about their mental well-being and looking at the independent effect of 9-11. Um, we, we have data to show that um, individuals, as they become increasingly heavy, as they put on weight, they shift the attention that they give to domains of life that are associated with their weight away from those aspects like health towards domains of life where their weight is less important. Leisure activities work perhaps. So this might start explaining some of the things that we observe in the real world is that actually it is hard, you know, people, not everybody loses, loses weight and the effort expended to lose weight may be greater than the effort that could be expended to shift the domain weights that you give to your weight compared to other things. It's a, a shifting of attention. Now, those life satisfaction data have been gathered and asked of a number of people over many years. Um, the problem, of course, taking my focusing effect question, is that they, they suffer from a focusing effect question, um, issue themselves, is that they remind people of certain key salient dimensions of their life that go into that score. If you ask me how satisfied I am with my life, my attention may be drawn to my job, my car, my house, my family, things that may matter to my experience, but may not always. 
And so what we additionally need are data on experience utility, on the well-being associated with the flow over time. And um, there are now measures and methods for looking at exactly that. We asked people to imagine yesterday as a series of episodes in a film, to carve it up in that way, to then rate, well, to, to say what they're doing, who they're with, and how they felt during those activities. In some of our own recent work, we've extended this notion of pleasure into reward. So not only how much fun are you having, but how much meaning is this activity bringing? Um, so much of our research is driven by our own personal interest, and as someone who um, recently became a father of one and then father of two, um, I thought, well, kids must show up somewhere, right? Um, they're not showing up in any of the happiness data today, right, Andrew? I don't think we find any effect, and if anything, they show up as negative. Finally, on the rewardingness dimension, where are we? Where are kids? Kids are somewhere... Uh, time with children, there we go. Time with children, not, it's, these are Z-scores, so it's not absolute values. Um, these are German data, um, so read into that what you will. Um, <coughs> or what you won't, you'll read into it anyway. Um, these are relatively rewarding, and rel sorry, relatively pleasurable, relatively rewarding activities. Um, time with children, Z-scores around the middle of the pleasure scale, but relatively rewarding. So finally, changing my kids' nappies have meaning um, if they don't have any joy. Notice volunteering um, is off the, the reward scale. <laughs> it's at the top of the reward scale. And you can notice a number of other things there, that going to work is not very pleasurable. Of course, I find it incredibly pleasurable, Howard. Um, uh, but it is <laughs> rewarding, although I have to say not as pleasurable as watching X Factor. Now, interestingly, for policy purposes, we would like to, I mean, this is not causal. We, we obviously, for policy purposes, would like to know some of the causality. This is entirely correlational. But it's to give you some indication of how these different activities may show up in our well-being. But of course, as you'd expect any uh, academic to say, is that we need more research. We need more research, well, money, actually, would be good, um, relating behaviour to happiness. And in fact, some of the best behaviour change policies may be ones that improve well-being. So that there's a feedback, direct feedback between behaviour and happiness. Um, we've recently been doing some work where we have been looking at the intrusive thoughts, the pop-ups as I would term them, that people have about their health, their finances. And some of these pop-ups are very good explainers of people's preferences. So the things that you think about are the things that drive your behaviour. Well, really, there's no one, that doesn't come as any great shock. William uh, James, I have a quote from him here, is, my experience is what I agree to attend to. And many of the psychological interventions, CBT and so on, positive psychology, are really about the reorientation of attention. Now, that's all very good, and that would be a wonderful place at which to stop if it wasn't for this. How are we doing? Um, if it wasn't for the fact that, this is my neuroscientific evidence, by the way, this is a brain scan, um, really high resolution brain imaging. Um, 
if it wasn't for the fact that so much of our behaviour is driven by involuntary attention. The things that the environment, the situation and the context shape. That's our limbic system, that's the core of our brain. That's Homer Simpson, of course, but it's a bit disingenuous to call our limbic system Homer Simpson because it's very old, very evolved, and very automatic, very fast. The world would be an incredibly complicated place if we, were all if we all acted like Mr. Spock all of the time. Our limbic system tries to make life easier for us. Sometimes it's very good at doing it, not always. Sometimes in our modern world, it leads us in perhaps mistaken directions. So now we're going beyond behavioural economics. Most of behavioural economics is about cognitive heuristics, cognitive biases. We're now moving into a territory where behavioural science has been moving for the last, well, I don't know, uh, 10 years or more, um, into a dual processing model of individual behaviour, a model of behaviour that's shaped not just by cognition, but by context. And so in, in my language, I'm talking about cognitive heuristics and biases as voluntary attention. And the, um, the influence of context, environment and situation as involuntary attention. Now that all seems rather, that may all seem rather abstract, so let's put some flesh onto that. In a um, report that was commissioned by the Cabinet Office that we uh, worked on last year through the Institute for Government, we attempted to gather up some of these effects that operate on our limbic system um, and to gather them up in a way that would allow policymakers to use them as a potential toolkit, checklist, as a way of thinking about behavioural interventions. And the best thing I can do is, because I haven't got time to go through um, all of these effects in Mindspace, Mindspace is a nine-letter mnemonic for what we consider to be the most robust effects on individual behaviour that operate principally, though not exclusively, through our automatic system. So let me just take a couple of elements of mind space. Um, in fact, let me just take, in the, for the purposes of time, let me just take a couple and join them up. Priming and affect. Um, what's, what does that mean? Well, psychological uh, affect is basically psychological speak for feelings. And priming are unconscious cues in the environment that drive our behaviour in ways that we're not consciously aware of. So, as an example, nice study sending out um, loan offers to people in the US, randomising the interest rates and, which is a very irrational thing to think about, right? You think about interest rates when you're thinking about whether you accept a loan or not and randomising whether there is an attractive woman on the front cover of the loan offer. Maybe not such a rational basis on which to choose a loan. Rational basis to choose some things, but not a loan. The attractive woman was worth 1% change in the interest rate. So you could charge 5% with her on the front cover, and only 4% in the absence of her on the front cover. Now, interestingly, before you start thinking I'm getting gendered and sexist, this applies to women as much as it applies to men. Now, why is this? Well, this is very interesting. I think it's very interesting. Our limbic system, our reptilian brain, is trying to look for consistency. It sees an attractive woman, 
and sees an attractive loan. Our unconscious is making a joining up that our conscious mind is unaware of. And that in that example would lead us to make a decision that may not be rational. Another example of priming, if, if you were given warm drinks, this is something to take for lessons and lectures, if you, if you were given warm drinks before you came in the room and you were asked to rate how much you liked me, um, you would like me more if you were holding a warm drink than if you'd been given a cold drink. Now why? Well, I have to say we have to speculate a bit here, but because again our limbic system is, looking, is joining up warmth, warm drink, warm person. It's making associations that our conscious brain is not in touch with. <coughs> this is all very interesting and it's providing us with many opportunities to think about how we can create environments to make it easier for people to do things that they subsequently appreciate having done or to not to do things that they subsequently wish they hadn't. So there are many specific um, examples, and I won't and I won't go into um, any of those uh, now. Perhaps I will just give one though, perhaps a potentially interesting one um, for t filling out tax returns. Um, basically, you you're all honest people, and you're all cheats, um, and you have a narrative of yourself as an honest person, whilst at the same time simultaneously benefiting from cheating a bit. So you fill in your tax return and you can tell a story of how the little bit of cheating as you go through is very honest. But what if you signed your tax return before you filled it in? Or what if you signed your tax return on each page and said, the evidence I'm about to give will be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Notice how you do that in court before you give the evidence, not afterwards. You don't say, oh yeah, by the way, everything I've just told you is true. You frame the mindset, to be honest, that then makes the trade-off between honesty and dishonesty different in an unconscious, automatic, uncontrolled, effortless way. Pretty interesting, huh? I like that idea. All right, we need, obviously, more data and more evidence. And it's brilliant that, in the happiness domain at least, we are now, through the... Office of National Statistics, able to start measuring happiness much more systematically and widely on samples that we could have only dreamt of a few years ago, I think. Um, we're also, we've, we've recently just um, uh, won some money from the ESRC and the German and French versions to look at the well-being consequences of the 2012 Games in London, Paris and Berlin um, to see uh, whether there's any causal association insofar as we can establish that um, from the Games. Um, and I think this is all, this is all very important um, and very useful. And what I want to now go on to in the final uh, part of my talk is to think about a bit more clearly and carefully about the kind of evidence that we might require in order to inform policy based upon the fact that a lot of our behaviour is involuntary attention, is, is a result of context, situation and environment. And... There are a number of issues that come out of this. Of course, the standard one for any academic is we need to establish causality and we need to control for selection effects. Importantly, 
we need to consider spillovers. This is the best attempt I could come up with of a slide that tried to capture spillovers. It's as if every policy and intervention was a pebble being dropped in the pond. And we need to assess the ripple effects of that pebble being dropped or that stone being dropped in the pool. We need to assess a number of spillovers. We need to look at spillovers of one change in my behaviour for other behaviours that I exhibit. So an intervention might encourage me to cycle to work. And we might evaluate that as having had an effect that more people cycle to work pre-intervention than was the post-intervention than was the case pre-intervention. Yeah, but what if all those people who cycle to work now feel like they've earned the good boy tokens or girl tokens to take long-haul flights? So the compensating behaviours are such that actually if you're looking at environmental damage, CO2 or whatever, that actually the intervention may potentially have made things worse rather than better. That's an empirical question. It could actually crowd in good behaviour. It could make me think, you know, cycling to work is cool. I like that. I like being an environmentally friendly person. I'm going to recycle more and take less long-haul flights. It could crowd in the behaviours. Empirically, at the moment, we have very little data on these things. We have very little data on whether I compensate in health behaviours. Climb a flight of stairs and eat a Big Mac. Uh, or whether I engage in charitable donation, crowding in or crowding out. Give more money through the ATM, potentially crowds in good behaviour or pro-social behaviour elsewhere, potentially crowds it out. It's an empirical question and our empirical research method should, so far as it's possible, capture those spillover effects. We need to also capture the spillover effects on the determinants of happiness. Now, for the use of happiness data in economic appraisal for policy purposes, we would ideally like to monetize the impacts. So I could say how much, in monetary terms, a change in my health status compared to crime rates, compared to the park in my environment, is worth. Now, in order to do that, we need to accurately attribute the effects, first of those things on well-being, but also of income, since we want to try and express these in monetary values. So we need methods, which we're working on, which we're um, uh, trying to develop in a more robust way, of, 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 of accurately capturing these spillover effects. So that, so that when I get more money, it makes me more likely to get married, which improves my well-being. So we need to, for example, we need to capture all of these direct and indirect effects as we sprinkle uh, income around. Now, of course, we need more evidence. But we don't need any kind of evidence. We need good evidence. Let me say what bad evidence is before I tell you what good evidence is. Bad evidence comes from asking people what they think will drive their behaviour. Because, not because they're liars, but because they don't know. Because so much of our behaviour is driven by unconscious, automatic and environmental triggers. As soon as you tap the conscious mind, you've removed what drives a large part of our behaviour. So, customer insight, for example, finding out from people how they intend to behave or how they think they have just behaved is almost hopeless. Say I said almost, because there's, you can always find a study that would show that, that's, that it's wrong to say it's hopeless. It's almost hopeless. I'll give an example of that. Um, in the market, if you ask people, um, 
do you want unlimited or limited downloads? Well, it's kind of like a bit of a stupid question, right? Now, my behavioral insight would tell me that you would get more people in the market buying your product if you had limited downloads than if you had unlimited ones. Why? Because unlimited downloads for how much, like for £10 a month, what does, that, what does that mean exactly? How many songs can I download, like the whole of music ever? If you said to me 100 downloads for £10, hey, that's pretty good, right? That's like, what is that, 10 pence a download or something, is it? Is that right? Um, that's quite cheap. So the behavioural response would be that limited downloads would be more successful than unlimited ones. You would never get that from any amount of customer insight, market research, focus group, qualitative interview you could ever do. Partly because the contextual behaviour affects our cognitive attitudes. If I, um, <laughs> if I said my wife doesn't understand me, um, it probably doesn't mean I'm thinking of having an affair, it probably means I'm having one. The behavioural response to have the affair may have been triggered by a whole range of environmental situation and alcohol-induced um, effects. Now I'm looking for post-hoc rationalisation for cognitive reasons to explain my behaviour, as if the attitudes preceded the behaviour, but the behaviour preceded the attitudes. And we don't know, actually. You, I, I would honestly tell you... I'm, I'm not having an affair, by the way. I would honestly tell you... Um, and I wouldn't tell you if I was, and, um, <laughs> um, and, I, and I wouldn't know why. Um, uh, we, I, would, I, I, I would honestly believe that my motivation to act in that way is what drove my behaviour. It's not I'm lying, but it's just I just don't know what drives my behaviour. So, okay, so what else can't we do? Well, we can't ask people questions. Um, we can do field experiments. What we can do is we can observe real behaviour of real people in the real world. That's what we can do and that's what we should do. Right now in public policy there are loads of stuff going on. None of it's being evaluated, assessed, monitored. If only we could get in there just before the intervention started, do a little bit of randomisation and we could look at the effects, the marginal effects of intervention, of different types of intervention on different outcomes, behaviours and ultimately happiness. And it doesn't actually require, I say we need more research money, we don't actually always need more research money, we just need the time to be able to get in there early to design the studies that will give us the evidence to inform policy. And the way in which we should do that is by just doing lots of stuff, doing lots of field experiments. Our traditional model of public policy has been, let's, insofar as we do evaluate policy interventions, because of course we don't always do that, but insofar as we do, let's build a tanker in the shipyard, let's spend a lot of resources, money, time and effort building the best intervention, the programme that we're going to set out to sail. And we launch it to a fanfare, um, and it sinks or heads off in the wrong direction, and now there's nothing we can do about it because the ballast has been tied to it and off, and off it goes. Instead what we should do is launch a hundred ships cheaply, 99 of them will sink, because we don't know ex ante some, some of these um, effects. We can only observe them ex post, because customer insight can't tell us. One of them will sail, and we load the ballast on that ship. What that requires, it requires us to accept failure. It requires the public sector to accept failure. But we're launching cheap ships, so it doesn't really matter that much. But it requires us to have an institutional memory of the failure. 
It requires us to remember where things went wrong. We're doing all sorts of things now in terms of public policy that we've probably tried before that have and haven't worked. We have no way of knowing. We have no way of measuring, monitoring, valuing whether these um, things have had any effect. But now we're able to. We're now able to measure these effects directly on people's happiness and well-being. And uh, it's very nearly my final slide. I just felt that I should say um, a couple of words about the uh, ethics and morality of nudges, because this is a question that always, that always comes up. Um, now, nudging us in particular directions is something that the market is very good at doing. Um, supermarkets and shops are very good at nudging us to buy their stuff. The nudges of policymakers could be assessed according to the impact on our desires, on our preferences, on our immediate rewards. But they could also be assessed according to the impact upon our happiness, on our experiences, on our well-being, on how life goes for us in the presence or absence of the nudge. So this is not, for me, a paternalistic agenda. It's an agenda that drives the policy decisions on the basis of the things that show up in people's happiness and well-being as they report it. And so the key question for policy is where this scarce resource of attention should and should not be directed. And we need a public debate and public permissions in order to think about how we can create choice architecture, to, to use the language of Thaler and Sunstein, in ways that give us the best shot of making ourselves and other people happier. And on that note, I've um, said to this point, everything is all about me, and, I've, and I don't work with anybody, and it's all my great ideas. Well, all the papers that I read, these are explicitly the papers that I've referred to during the course of this talk. There are other working papers that are in progress with a range of colleagues. Um, I, I have mentioned nobody, because um, if I mention some people, then I have to mention uh, others, and so um, I'm taking all the plaudits myself. Um, you know who you are. Um, you're all fantastic people to work with. I should have to say, and I say this sincerely, that you bring me a great deal of pleasure and meaning. Um, but I will just thank Danny Kahneman, because he's been the intellectual insp inspiration uh, on the way that I think about these issues. And I'd like to thank uh, Dominic King and Rob Metcalf, whose names are also involved there, for helping me plan this talk and uh, especially for Don for paying for the slides, actually, uh, from downloading them uh, in a way that wasn't violating copyright. Um, uh, and so, finally, I'd like to thank you all uh, for coming and listening to me speak this evening. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Paul. Well, we've got uh, time for a few uh, questions, and I think also your uh, survey responses are going to be brought down. Are they? Yes, possibly. Yeah. Um, it was an inaugural lecture in two senses. One, it was your first lecture here, but it's also the first, I think, uh, in which a professor here has felt the need to declare whether or not they were having an affair. Um, and uh, I think I'm making that a standard requirement um, in lectures at the LSE, which uh, could smoke out a few interesting things. Um, 
A couple of things occurred to me, I have to say, before I throw this open. One is that um, the, the warm drink phenomenon, that clearly if we allowed people to bring their cappuccinos into lecture theatres, we would almost certainly increase student satisfaction. Um, which would push us up the league tables, which I think is uh, quite, an, uh, quite an interesting idea. The second one that really puzzled me um, was that if you looked, and perhaps not everybody at the back could see, but the slide of relatively pleasurable and relatively rewarding um, showed that um, sex was relatively less pleasurable than commuting. <laughs> and, and that puzzled me. <laughs> Until I remembered that it was about having sex with a German, wasn't it? Because um, then I, then I realised that uh, that's quite explicable. So, um, but let me, uh, let me throw, uh, throw it open um, uh, to anybody who has uh, questions. There's a lot of interesting material, and particularly related to what all this means uh, for public policy. And, um, yeah, we've got a couple over here. Take the woman in green on the front. Can you give you your name and that's, yeah, go for it. Um, I wonder if you could um, explain what you think about acting with intent, whether people can do things intentionally or not. Um, so I defer to the psychologists on this uh, point, but my... Um, uh, understanding is that yes of course I mean not all of our behavior is environmentally driven but um, it the intent becomes you, you can make it a habit in a sense by doing the behavior and then inferring that that was the intent that followed that came before that action um, uh, but I defer to the psychologist there are people in this room who could answer that question much better than I can uh, next yeah Given that you're now in the cabinet office loop and doing health, um, I want to push one of my monomanias at you, which is teen smoking, which has a particular component. As we know now, uh, a 12-year-old who starts smoking will find it, because of the effect on the still-developing teen brain, much harder to give up in later life than a 22-year-old who starts smoking. Mm -hmm. um, this makes the battle to stop the adolescent who's excited by change is not affected by mortality, fear, uh, and the various other components, um, a, a pretty tricky one. And uh, sticking <coughs> skulls and crossbones on packets uh, doesn't work for that community, which we now know. Your comments? Um, just to ret can I just return to give a better answer to your intention question? In some of the health uh, behaviours, um, <laughs> I don't care, no, I do care now. Um, so the 3% of the health behaviours in some of the panel data are explained by intention, which leaves 97% of it explained by other things. So I'm not optimistic that intentions are a good explainer of, of um, individual behaviour. Um, on the smoking issue, I mean, it's actually... Um, we shouldn't be, I mean, smoking rates have fallen. Um, they've fallen in the presence of higher excise duty. I mean, there's only so far we can go with tax before it starts introducing a black market and makes it more, uh, gives people incentives to buy cigarettes on the black market. Um, it's a policy question about how far we go with legislation. Um, 
you know, we've, we, we're, I think, you know, that the public policymakers are indeed doing, doing more. Um, and perhaps the ultimate um, end point will be the banning of cigarettes other than if you have a license or making it much harder and harder to buy them. I think actually a lot of the, uh, the insights from the behavioural sciences are actually really quite straightforward. If you want people to do um, things that they subsequently think are in their best interest, make it easier for them. Um, and if you want them not to do things that are in their best interest, make it harder for them. So we should just make it harder for people to get cigarettes. Um, not only through through the price mechanism, but through access. Just make it harder. And then those that really, really do want to smoke can still do so, um, but most other people will be nudged out of it. Um, In Australia, you can't reshow them on point of sale anymore. Has that worked? Uh, I don't know if that's worked. Has it worked? I think it has to some degree. Um, I think it has to some degree. Um, smoking is an example of where... In set, so in, in, some, in some populations... Um, Incentivizing pregnant mothers, for example, to give up smoking seems to have had some effect. Um, so there are policy interventions that could get people who have otherwise, you know, started in a, you know, pretty entrenched actions, behaviours, whatever, to, to um, you know, to sort of change the way they behave by the use of incentives, paying, paying them to uh, stop. Uh, yeah, down here, second row, thanks. Uh, thank you for the interesting lecture, if I may say so. Thank you, Andrew. Next. Uh, you, you, mentioned, <laughs> uh, you mentioned, of course, as most people here may know, that the ONS, the government statisticians, are trying to, or are about to try yes. to collect more well-being data. I'm wondering what you think would be the most revealing kind of well-being information or question uh, to be collected, particularly bearing in mind priming biases and the other things you've discussed. Yes, that's a very good question. Of course, debate is ongoing. Uh, my, on the priming question, my recommendation would always be that happiness question comes first in any survey. So before people have been primed by a whole range of other factors that will influence that happiness rating, um, that we should measure happiness in a number of ways. Um, and it would be for policymakers to ultimately decide which one or ones are the most suitable for the applications to which they're going to be put. I would, I, I'm inclined to, because we have lots of previous studies and it seems to be a pretty meaningful question to ask people to, to use the general how satisfied are you with your life question, as well as questions about, more direct questions about mood, positive and negative affect as you experience them during the course of the day. Um, and some of the interesting policy questions may come when those measures come apart, um, as well as when they correlate highly with each other. There's somebody over here. Yeah, man in the fourth row. <clears throat> Hi. Um, it's one of the issues with this that people are constantly changing and developing all the time. Um, I've noticed that a lot of the out, uh, research from psychology recently has really emphasised um, that development is a lifelong experience, that constantly our genetics and our biology and our thoughts and everything are sort of acting on each other and modifying each other all the time. Um, does that create a bit of a problem here? That we, How would we handle that in the context of what you talked about in terms of attention and priorities? Um, is there a danger that if we took a measure of well-being, for example, it would be true only for the moment in time that you took it and then someone's priorities have moved on before you've had a chance to make sense of the results? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting research questions is whether the previous, uh, whether happiness and well-being and other measures of outcome in previous periods drive future well-being and other things that policymakers care about. Um, and so some of the 
new, newer data sets like the Millennium Cohort Survey, for example, will enable us to look at previous well-being um, assessments early on in life to look at what effects they have on later in life. But, I mean, well-being is ultimately experienced in, the, in this moment. You ask me how happy I am, I am how happy I am now. Um, I mean, I can give you some imagination of how happy I expect to be or I can try to recall how happy I was. We know that our forecasts and, and the recalls are not particularly accurate representations of how things will be and, and how things were. So direct assessment of individuals' well-being over time for that individual is still the best way, I would say, is still the best way to accurately capture an individual's well-being by asking them lots and lots of times. Over, I mean, you in the end bore them, but you know, as often as you could, um, to find out how happy they are. One of the good things about the ONS data is it will be quarterly. Um, uh, to date, we've only had in surveys like the British Household Panel or the Understanding Society, we've only had annual data, and so looking at some of the causality there um, is a bit trickier because you've got longer time frames. But having data quarterly um, is, I think, a step in the right direction to try and establish some of these causal mechanisms. So, so, yeah, so woman there next door, your hands went up simultaneously. So, um, I'm interested if you think there can actually be a negative impact of um, focus or attention. And actually, um, I think it was Mill who said something about the fact if you ask yourself if you're happy, you cease to be so. Um, and there is something about sometimes if you focus on things, they can have a very negative recurring impact and that can accentuate itself. So I just... We've talked a lot about happiness necessarily, but whether there might be something that's negative that can be created by that attention. Yes. So I have this kind of I have this um, slide that's like my life coach slide, which is of, of all the things you should and shouldn't do about happiness. And it's you know think about this, think about that, think about this, and then finally don't think about these things too much. Um, which <laughs> that's that's it. I mean, it's a tricky balance. I mean, you don't want to. So that's why we're interested in assessing. One of the things I think is a really interesting um, way of developing some of the happiness and well-being measures is to measure intrusive thoughts and pop-ups and the extent to which people are thinking about things routinely. Because actually, if we're thinking, if you, by and large, if you're thinking about anything a lot, chances are it's an, it is having a negative effect. There's some recent work, uh, a paper in Science, that showed that almost any mind-wandering was bad for well-being. You were much better in the sense if you could live in the moment, if you could attend to whatever it was that you were engaged in, as opposed to wandering off elsewhere. So what would you say? <laughs> <laughs> I like that, I like that. That was, that was actually really good. <laughs> uh, man, uh, yeah, just there, uh, thanks. It was too quick for me. Thanks. I, you talked about loss aversion yeah. and about how if you lose 10 pounds and then gain it, you yeah. actually be below zero. Yeah. I wonder if you think you could like nudge someone so that the other way would happen, so that you were less loss aversion and more... Yeah, so some, of these things, some of these things you might be able to. I mean, the, the loss aversion is so, I think, so hardwired. I mean, it shows up in functional magnetic resonance imaging studies. Um, it's a pretty pervasive, it's a hardwired response to losses compared to gains. It'd be very hard to, to nudge people out of that. What I, would, what I would be inclined to do is see, a lot, of, a lot of economics especially, but psychology to some degree, has thought of these things as heuristics and biases and errors and mistakes and aren't people crazy and if only we could knock them out of their silliness they'd be more sensible. Is actually accept that they are heuristics and biases 
that we are subject to and use them as ways of making policy better and easier rather than us trying to de-bias them, de-stabilise de them, use them to policy advantage. So in the case of using incentives in health to change uh, health actions, behaviours, um, rather than giving money to people to change their behaviour, give the money up front in a bank account or something and then watch it dwindle when you don't engage in the behaviour. So the loss aversion is more salient. That might work better. So there are, there are examples of how we can use these effects to make better policy rather than to try to overcome them. Yeah, they're in the sort of West Ham colours there. Yeah. Or Aston Villa um, or Burnley. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering whether, West Ham. With, um, with so much happening with regards to public policy about well-being and happiness and becoming part of the educational process and the like, uh, part of our public literacy whether any future research into happiness is actually going to be contaminated by the fact that it's now become part of our literacy <coughs> and therefore our attention has been drawn to it already? It's a very interesting question. Um, one of the questions that we're not, uh, we don't have a very good answer to in the happiness research is that, well, in fact, many of the mind space elements, but take the messenger, the M. Um, we, we know very little about whether responses are influenced by who's asking the question. So if the survey is being done by the Department of Health or the LSE or the ONS, you know, do people give different responses based upon the messenger? That's an open research question. There are many of, those, of, of that kind. That's why it's good being an academic. You spend a long time trying to answer them. A uh, woman three, low, three rows behind, just straight up there. That's it. And <coughs> then I've got somebody at the back. Um, you haven't mentioned the expression, what is in people's best interests, which I think is rather different from whether they're feeling happy or they have a sense of well-being. Um, obviously, we don't always know what's in our best interests. We heard about the example of the teenagers smoking, and also there's the example of kids whose peer, because of peer pressure, kids who don't want to study and they don't know that yep. it's a good idea education and so on and so forth. And also there's this whole problem about people's aversion to the so-called nanny state, particularly in the, the media. Yeah. And obviously, how does this um, uh, coincide with your research? All these so, um, I trust people's assessments, by and large, with a few exceptions. I trust people's reports of how happy they feel. I trust their assessments of how satisfied they are with their life. I trust their assessments of how much meaning and purpose they have in them. Um, they're the best judges of their happiness. And all policy interventions at some point, at somewhere at some point, should show up in better reports of happiness and well-being. So I'm very clear about my normative position um, on that. On the smoking example, it's very interesting. I mean, one of the, one of the maybe the best policy examples of using happiness uh, evidence is in the States that shows that smokers are happier when smoking taxes go up. Now, if you take a standard economic logic, they must be worse off because they can, if they put up price, then of course you can satisfy less of your individual preferences, all else equal. Um, but smokers may actually prefer to be disincentivized out of their smoking. I think that's a very good example, insofar as that evidence is robust, of where happiness data could usefully be used to inform policy decisions. Because it shows up in people's reports. And as I say, by and large, I trust people to know how happy they are. I trust them to know 
much better than I trust other people to know what's in their best interests. Uh, yes, yeah, so a man in the white shirt, and then I'll come down to you. Just up there, white shirt. Hi, um, my question is similar to the one prior to last. Um, yeah. If our subconscious is what really makes us happy, yeah. then um, if we find out about it, then if we deliberately then try to do the things to make us happy, won't it no longer work? Well, we have ways to make you happy. So, you know. <laughs> well, it's a, I mean, that's, an, you know, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I, don't have, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that question. I mean, we, you know, we, we would... I mean, I think, I think there is you know, something important in just feeding back information to people, just as a kind of feedback mechanism, um, in relation to travel choice, for example. You know, if you can... If, if it's... If it's shown that my reports of my own well-being are considerably lower when I travel to work by one method as compared to the next, there may be all sorts of unconscious cues and everything else going on there, but that would be a sensible piece of information, I think, to feed back to me that may or may not change my behaviour. I may not believe it. I may not want to. You know, we still will allow people liberties and freedoms. I mean, I'm not paternalist. Uh, as I say, I mean, you know, there are different degrees to which this information can be used to inform policy. The first and foremost piece of first and foremost use is just as a feedback mechanism, as just giving people back information about the key drivers to their happiness and well-being through their actions and through their life events and everything else. Let's take a, a couple more and then you can give your feedback. Yeah, your yeah, yeah, this is good. Uh, this is good. one woman just here, yeah. Thank you. Um, Paul, Paul my, my question is about two things that you said and trying to make a connection between them. Yeah. Um, where you're talking about well-being um, as the dependent variable, you know, the, the thing that you want policy to evaluate and assess and so yeah. on, um, and what are the drivers of yeah. changes in well-being right. is the implication of that. On the other hand, you gave the example of post-9-11 where the impact on measures of well-being were very, very short-lived. Mm. Um, and so what, what is this relationship between very stable measures of well-being, on the one hand, and wanting to maximise well-being or minimise the, the negative impact of policy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's obviously, again... <laughs> An interesting and, and, and difficult question. I mean, the thing that the data are, t are showing us are the things that, you know, giving us evidence on the things that we get used to quickly and the things that we don't get used to quickly. I don't want to overstate the adaptation uh, point. I mean, it's true that adaptation is the withdrawal of attention is a pretty universal phenomenon for most things, but not for everything. So, you know, you imagine being depressed. Well, the 52nd Sunday you wake up depressed probably not much better, maybe worse than the first Sunday that you woke up depressed. So it's giving us evidence on the things that continually draw attention to themselves that we may not always forecast. So, some of the, so noise, for example, is an attention-seeking phenomenon. People imagine that they'll get used to it. Actually, the experience of the condition is that it gets worse. So there are, it's, it will allow us, and this, this to restate what, what I think is the really fundamental point, to tell us which things are important in people's lives when they're not thinking about how important they are. Uh, man there, there's a cream pullover, and then we'll get your answers. Hi. I'm interested in the importance of our sense of agency and how much you think that intervening in decision-making 
actually undermines people's sense of humanity. And actually, uh, uh, to, original, to return to the original framing of your question in the beginning, what percentage of your happiness would you give up to have been responsible for it? <laughs> well, I mean, we... Well, I can't answer that question. Um, I can only ask you questions about the pleasure you get from your car. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know how much of my... I mean, look, I mean, we, we as... Pot, it, Two and a half thousand years of ethical discourse have got us to the point at which there are broadly three accounts of human welfare. You can essentially see well-being improving when we're giving people more of the things that we think they need, that policymakers decide or the general public decide are important dimensions of an individual's well-being, whether they show up in their experiences or not. Education, health, literacy. You can think of well-being as giving people more of the things that they want, satisfying preferences why income in economics is so important because it allows us to satisfy more of our desires and you can think about well-being as showing up in individuals mental states and broadly speaking I think policy has done a lot of thinking about the things that we think we need economic policy has done a lot of thinking about giving us more of the things that we think we want and, and that we actually want and now we're at a stage where we can more directly measure the things that show up in our direct experiences. And it's a policy question about how to appropriately weight all of those things. I'm very clearly in favour of the mental state account, but let's put it on the table and weigh it up against the other things that are deemed to be policy useful, including autonomy, responsibility, and all the things that you've just mentioned. Do you give your answer? So, this is brilliant. Um, I'm, ho I'm, I'm assuming Matteo didn't make these numbers up. Uh, so uh, w the question on, on, on how happy you were... Some, some people got the question, how happy you were from driving your car, and half of the people got the question, how happy were you the last time you drove your car? Um, and, the, uh, the, and then you were both asked how much your car was worth. It's worth... This is a piece of useful information, uh, uh, Howard. The average car value is £1,000, as people see it uh, in this room. <laughs> um, or £1,010 in one treatment and 1000 in the other. So I suspect that's not statistically significantly different. Um, the, the happiness with driving the car was 6.5 out of uh, 10, and the happiness with the last time you drove your car was 5 out of 10. So um, consistent with the evidence that I cited right at the beginning uh, of the evening, which feels like a very long time ago now, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, all, these, all of you are prepared to sell reliable cars for £1,000. I think there may be some people queuing up uh, uh, outside. Um, look, uh, first of all, um, let me say one thing that is, uh, we hope will make you happy, which is that the Social Policy Department, in honour of this inaugural lecture, uh, are inviting you all to a drink afterwards. Um, because of what Paul said earlier, I have asked them to warm up the white wine, so I hope that is, uh, I hope that is what you want, because um, that's what you said. Um, the uh, second thing was to thank you for a fascinating lecture. Um, I'm sure that this is not the last we will hear from you. Indeed, same time, same place next week, is that uh, <laughs> all right? Um, but I'm sure we'll want to follow this research because it is clearly at the front of a lot of people's minds and the front of political debate. Um, and I'm sure that the work that you're doing is going to deliver us uh, results and uh, hypotheses over time which we're going to want to expose to a broader audience. So um, it was a great start, but it's not over. Um, thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Thank you.